Today's scripture is from Galatians 1, 11 through 24. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it from a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when, we, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to be with you this morning, and it's good to continue our series in Galatians. If you weren't here last week, I shared that the the theme of this book, if you had to boil what Galatians is about down into one word, it would be the word freedom. And what Paul is saying throughout this letter is that God cares about your freedom. Indeed, that there is no one more passionate about your freedom than the God of freedom. And a lot of us, when we think of church, when we think of God, when we think of the Bible, freedom isn't necessarily the first word that comes to our minds, but it is one of the central themes of the Bible. Going back to the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, he put them in a beautiful garden, and the very first command was basically, go have fun. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. All sorts of freedom. When Adam and Eve rebelled, they found themselves living in slavery, slavery to sin, to guilt, to shame. And God came and he made a promise to them that he would send his son who would ultimately deliver them. Now, between Adam and Eve and the coming of Christ, what we see again and again in the Old Testament is the people of God finding themselves in slavery in one form or another and God delivering them. The most notable, of course, being Exodus when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and God delivered them into the land of freedom, the promised land. And so this happens again and again. And in some ways, it's how you can understand the cycle of the Old Testament. God sets people free, makes people free. They turn from him, find themselves in slavery, and then God redeems them. Now, this is the cycle, and that cycle, we're, we're told that there is a break in that cycle. That cycle stops when Jesus comes. Because Jesus, he began his public ministry by walking into the synagogue in Nazareth, opening the scroll of Isaiah, and reading from Isaiah chapter 61. Here's what the Lord said. This is his inaugural address, his very first speech he ever gave. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom 
for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the very first sermon he ever gave, he begins by saying twice, I've come to set you free. And that's what Paul is arguing throughout this letter. Galatians 5.1, which is probably kind of the summary verse of all of Galatians, Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And I've been thinking about that. He doesn't say it is for worship that Christ has set you free. He doesn't say it is for service. And he doesn't say it's for God's glory, although certainly all those things are included. Paul says it's for freedom, which means this concept of freedom that Paul's talking about, it's not a means to an end. Jesus didn't make us free to to something else. It's an end in itself of knowing him and loving him. And so the question is, if God cares so much about our freedom, if he's moved heaven and earth to make us free, why don't we feel free? Why don't we live free? Why is freedom one of the last, the last words people would use to describe many Christians and many churches? Why are we timid and fearful and bitter and numb? And what I... What I want to hold before you this morning is that living into this glorious freedom Jesus has secured for us, it's difficult, not because of God, but because of us. We struggle to live in freedom, not because God doesn't want us to live in freedom, not because he's playing hide and seek with freedom, making us constantly look and search it out. We struggle to live in freedom because of who we are and because of our own stuff. We struggle to live and experience freedom because of anxieties about the future, what's going to happen. We're constantly worried about what's coming tomorrow. I think part of the reason we struggle to live in freedom is because of our our preoccupation with our present performance or kind of our self-obsession with how I'm doing, which I hear a lot in the church. Like, I know I'm free, but I just feel awful because I do all of these things or I feel like I'm never measuring up, which Jesus doesn't want us to live that way. So it's our future, our present. But I would also say that one of the big reasons we don't live in freedom is because of our past. And because we don't know what to do with our past. And because we have some notion of what Jesus came to do and how he deals with our past. But, but as a whole, our past still haunt us. Our past sins, our past sufferings, our past experiences. We don't know what to do with our own stories. I've been a pastor for 12 years now, which isn't an incredibly long time, but long enough to know that oftentimes in life, you kind of get stuck Oftentimes in faith, you kind of get stuck. Anyone ever been there where you you just feel like, I don't know how to move forward here. Like maybe it's you're stuck in a particular sin or a thought pattern or just like a spiritual malaise and you're wondering, how do I move forward? All of the old tricks aren't working anymore. All the things that I used to do, they're not doing it for me anymore. And a truth that's paradoxical, but very, very true that I've learned over the years is that sometimes... We have to go backwards if we want to move forward in the Christian life. Sometimes you got to go backwards if you want to move forward. And every single year of ministry, both my own personal journey and in pastoring people, I've become more and more convinced of how true this, that statement is. We have to deal with our past. But dealing with our past, dealing with our stories, 
dealing with, maybe it's distant past years and years ago, maybe it's a year, two, three years ago. Dealing with that's a hard thing for us. And, and we kind of go to extremes when it comes to thinking about our past. You have some people in our world who would argue like, my past is everything. Like what I've done, what's been done to me, what I've been through, that didn't just shape me, that defines me and it controls me. And I can't move forward in life because of this, because of what's happened. Like I, I am who I am because of all of these things. I'm just stuck. And I don't want to dismiss what some of you have been through. Some of you have been through horrific, horrible things. But the problem with thinking my past is everything is Jesus comes out and says it's absolutely not. I mean, the promise of the gospel is that you can grow, you can change, you can heal, and you can move forward in life. Nowhere in the Bible are we encouraged just to see ourselves as hopeless, helpless victims who can never change. So you have some people who say, my past is everything. I would say that's probably more out there in the world than in the church. In the church, I see people tend to go to the other extreme, especially the American church, especially in the last 50 years, which is my past is nothing. The world says my past is everything. In the church, my past is nothing. It doesn't matter. Like, that's the past. I'm living into the present. What, what I went through as a kid, it's irrelevant. Can't we just let sleeping dogs lie? When we bring this up in the church, people will say things like, aren't you just importing modern psychology into the church? Didn't Paul say, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead? Shouldn't that be how we live? And I would say Paul absolutely did say that. But Paul also, more than any other author in the New Testament, devoted lengthy portions of his letters. And even Luke, when Paul, Luke tells Paul's story, again and again, what we find is that Paul goes back to his past over and over again that he doesn't ignore it, he doesn't act like it never happened, but instead he's integrated it into his life. Now, that's, that's a long runway to hopefully get the plane off here, but the first two chapters, this is why it's important, the, very, the first two chapters of Galatians, they're basically Paul just telling a story. So a third of the book of Galatians, Paul's letter on freedom, is his telling a story about his past. Now, the reason he's telling this story Primarily, I would guess, this is what we assume, is that people were attacking his authority as an apostle. And so he lays out his story to defend his authority and his apostleship. But I would say, as Paul tells his story, he gives us kind of a masterclass and how we can bring the gospel to bear on our stories. That Paul models for us how we can rightly go backwards if we want to move forward in life with God. And so there are three things I want to highlight in this text this morning as we think about what it means to break free from our past. And what I mean by that is not that we forget that they ever happened, but we break free from how they control us, how it controls and shapes us in unhealthy, unfruitful ways. Number one, this text shows us and teaches us about the grace we need to own our stories. Number two, this text shows us the power that God's given us to reframe our stories. And then number three, this text helps us see the freedom that Jesus has given us that we might live into a better story. So the grace, the power, and the freedom, starting with the grace we need to own our story. Owning our story can be a hard thing. It can be crippling to think about 
owning our story, especially if you have a dark past, especially if you have a lot of scandalous or shameful sins in your past. It's easy to be crippled by that. And I would say if anyone would be crippled by their past, it would be the Apostle Paul. In verse 13, Paul writes, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I had persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now, Paul gives us a window here that he was a man who had done some horrible, terrible things. Paul had murdered innocent people. Paul had thrown even more people into prison, and he did it because of his hatred for Jesus and his church. Paul, if he had his way, he would have wiped Christianity from the face of the planet. To put it plainly, Paul was a violent, bigoted, religious fanatic. And he writes about it here. And he, I mean, he was so much so that everyone even knew about him. Like people were hearing about how violent and fanatical this man was. And Paul says, that's not only who I was, I was actually proud of it. Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own, beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Like he was the rising star that everyone knew about and everyone heard about. Like that's Paul, Mr. Judaism. And what I find so shocking in this text is that Paul's writing this letter that's going to go out to a number of churches, probably thousands of people, and he has this past, which is probably worse than any of our pasts here when you think about it. And he writes about it, and he owns it. Do you notice that? He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't minimize what he's done. He doesn't shift the blame. And I would say if you're... If you're willing to let Paul be a human being, this should shock you as much as it shocks me. The Bible is inspired by God. It's given to us by God, but it was also written by human beings. And Paul was a human being. And could you imagine what it was like for him to be persecuting the church, trying to rid the earth of Christians when Jesus shows up in his life? Says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Like, that's an uh uh-oh moment if you ever had one. Like, I might have screwed up here. Like I might have made a bit of a mistake. And yet Paul, he, he doesn't retell the story like, well, it was, see, the problem was I was raised Jewish and so this is what everyone else taught me and so I was just doing, no, he just owns it. Like this is who I was. I was a violent bigot and I did awful, awful things. This is just so uncommon. It's not common in our world. You don't see this kind of radical honesty in the world. Sometimes people brag about past exploits, but seeing real contrition, seeing real ownership of past sin, that's, that's a strange thing to see in the world. I would also say it's a strange thing to see in the church. I mean, we love a good testimony. We love it when someone stands from the stage and shares about how awful and hard their life was or bad they were, and then they came to Jesus. But we like to keep that on the stage. As a whole, we in the church, we don't like to actually hear and immerse ourselves in those stories day in and day out. And I think that's a big reason why we struggle to live in freedom. I was talking with our pastors and elders this week, our staff, 
And I just asked them, what do you think keeps people from living free? What do you think keeps people in our church from living free? And one of the things I heard again and again is I think so many people in our church are hiding. People are afraid to be honest. People are afraid to own their stuff. We all think that somehow by now we should kind of have this Christian life figured out. And so we hide. And I would say you never find freedom in hiding. Put it a different way. Freedom is never found in the dark. Freedom's always found when you come to the light. There's no freedom in darkness. Fear, guilt, shame, these are some of the biggest obstacles that keep us from experiencing a life of freedom. But we struggle to be a people who can be honest and open, transparent. We struggle to do what Paul did here. Well, the question is then, where did Paul find the strength to do this? I mean, we feel pressures in the church to kind of have it all together. The pressure we feel is probably nothing compared to the pressure Paul felt. I mean, he was raised in a tradition that valued what you did, your morality, so much more than the American church. I mean, they would memorize whole books of the Bible. They would, they would tithe out of their spice racks. They were diligent about keeping the law, very much so. And where does Paul find the freedom to say, yeah, I was, I was so concerned with getting it all right, and then I found I got it all wrong. Man, I got it really wrong, and I hurt a lot of people. Well, we get an... We get a window into the answer in verses 11 and 12 when Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here's how this connects. What Paul is saying is every other religion in the world is a man-made religion where if you do enough good things, then you can climb the ladder to God. If you can get your life together well enough, you'll be loved by God. And what Paul's saying here is the gospel of Jesus Christ is radically different. The gospel, Paul's saying, one, he said, I didn't come up with this. I wasn't sitting around meditating, wondering, how could I make Judaism just a little bit more palatable to people? And he said, it's not something I received from other people. The gospel is news that came flooding into my life through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It was completely outside of myself. And then Jesus came in and he saved me. He blinded me for three days, which was like a splash of cold water in my face. But he saves me. Paul actually says that God was pleased to save him. See, the gospel is the good news that God has broken into our world to save us from our sins, to redeem us from our past, completely, wholly, totally apart from our works. And the essence of who we are in Christ is defined by Christ, not by what we do or what we have done. The sin and shameful things we've done in the past, they don't define us. That's why we sing about being washed, white as snow as far as the east is from the west. And this is why Paul's able to say, my former life. And if we, we struggle to own our past, I think part of the reason we struggle is because we struggle to believe the grace of God. But the grace of God, it enables us to be honest. The grace of God should enable us to laugh at ourselves sometimes, right? 
Like there are things before I was a Christian, I'll push it even further. There are things that even as a Christian years ago, maybe not even that many years ago that I look at and think, I was kind of dumb. I don't know why I was like that. I don't know why I did that. The gospel allows us to do that. You know, I heard someone once say the ability to, to change your mind is the mark of maturity. And I think in the Christian life, the ability to laugh at yourself when it's appropriate and the ability to be honest and to say, that's who I was. And it's affected me and shaped me. And it's wrong. And I hurt a lot of people. That's a sign of maturity. There's a piece of ancient Christian wisdom, and it's phrased a lot of different ways. What, but it basically means this. What, what isn't owned ends up owning you. What isn't healed ends up being handed down. What isn't transformed ends up being transferred. And the essence of what's being said there is that if you can't deal with your past, if you don't look at it, because you think, I don't want to deal with it. That's going to be too hard. Don't fool yourself into think that your past is not dealing with you at this very moment, and it's not shaping you. The Bible, it not only speaks about generational sin, it shows us the power of it as well. David, David loved God, right? David also loved women. And David was a womanizer. And Kind of, he hit the lowest of the low when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's a very shameful moment in his life. And if you study his life, the rest of his life kind of goes downhill after that. But he and Bathsheba, they have a son, Solomon. And one of the things we know about Solomon is he was twice the womanizer his dad ever was. Look at Abraham. You know, Father Abraham. Abraham had a messed up marriage, and Abraham had a real problem with lying. He has a son, Isaac. You know what happens in Isaac's life? Isaac has a problematic marriage, and he struggles with lying. And then he has a son, Jacob, and Jacob's the greatest liar of them all. And his family's so dysfunctional that a bunch of his sons come together and try to kill another one of his sons, Joseph. Like, what we are fooling ourselves if we think that the past is in the past and it doesn't affect us now. And I would say for the parents in the room, one of the greatest gifts we can give our children is breaking free from the power of past sins and the curse of generational sins. One of the greatest gifts we can give our kids. Maybe your family has a history of anger. Maybe it's abuse. Maybe it's alcoholism. Maybe it's adultery. Maybe it's abandonment. Those are just the ones that start with A. <laughs> I don't want to go through the whole lot. But maybe you have that stuff. One of the greatest gifts you could ever give your kid is to say, listen, we were raised, our family, there is a history of alcoholism in our family. And that history was changed by Jesus in my life. We were raised in a family where you never talked about your emotions and the only valid emotion was anger. That stopped with me by the grace of God. But the only way you get there is you have to own, but that was my story. That's the way forward. We have to own, own our past, and we can only do that by grace. Number two, we don't just stop there in owning our story. In this text, Paul also shows us that the gospel gives us a power to reframe our story. 
Most of us, when we think about our Christian life, we, we, or our life, we, as Christians, we divide it into two categories, our before Christ era and then our after Christ era, right? And so our before Christ era is before we knew Jesus, when we did all this dark stuff, and then we have after Christ. And I would say that that division, there's nothing wrong with that, that that's not unbiblical, that Paul even does that in this text. It's a biblical thing to do. But my fear is when we do this, we tend to think that like, well, that moment of conversion, that's when God entered into my life. That's when God showed up in my life. And so everything that happened before then, God was absent. But then when I believed in him, then he actually started moving in my life. And there is a profound, deep truth in this text that Paul just, he kind of alludes to. Where he, verses 13 and 14, he, he, said, he lays out his past sins. But then he says this, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles. And then he goes on. Don't miss what he just said there. He said, God set me apart before I was born. That God was at work in my life even before I knew a thing about Jesus and even when I was railing against Jesus. What Paul's doing here is he's, he's reframing his past. He's looking at it all and saying, like, all of these years, God wasn't absent. I mean, I didn't know him. I wasn't in a saving relationship, but he was at work in my life. And I would say this is something you can't usually wrap your mind around when you first come to faith. When you first come to faith, that's, that's way too much. But I would say as you grow in the Christian life, as you reflect on your past over time, I do believe that you, you can begin to see the ways in which God used all the stuff in your past, your sin, your struggles, and your suffering. You can actually see how God, like a master composer, was bringing those things together in order to lead you to him and to prepare you for the works that he has for you. Paul sees that he'd been resisting Jesus for years. He'd done so much wrong and evil, but he's also able to see that God was just all of that. God was preparing him to save him and then to send him into the world. And I would say that the gospel it enables us, it gives us the power to reframe how we understand our stories. Even if there's a lot of darkness, God wasn't absent. And I have a friend who about seven years ago went through just a horrible season. He was on staff at another church uh, far away from here. And it was just horrible. It's like, no one likes drama, but church drama is worse than anything, right? Like, we want the church to be free of drama, and unfortunately, it's not. Uh, but it was just a, a brutal season in his life and left a lot of wounds and a lot of scars. But now he has the ability to look back and say, who would I have been if it wasn't for that season? How would my life have been different if I hadn't gone through that? Now, I... Some of you, you've been through 
just suffering that's beyond my comprehension. And I want to acknowledge there's some mystery here. I'm not saying God delights in every awful thing that happens to you. God hates sin and he hates suffering. He moved heaven and earth and he died on a cross to deal with them both. What I am saying is that there's some mystery that God can actually use that stuff, the awful stuff, that he wasn't absent in it and he can actually use it for your good and for his glory. You know, Joseph, Jacob's son, whose brothers tried to murder him and then sold him into slavery, he had real pain. Then years later, through a series of providential events and circumstances, his brothers have to come to him. He's like number two in Egypt and his brothers have to come looking for food because there's a famine in the land. And you can tell that that it's still raw because when he sees his brothers, he starts to weep and he like runs out of the room. Like, I don't know if I can deal with this right now. And then he comes back and when his brothers realize, oh, like the second in command is the brother that we thought was dead and we sold into slavery. They're freaking out, right? Because all of a sudden, the little brother's got some power. Like, this is time for retribution. And they're like, please don't, don't pay us back. Don't. And Joseph, he shows just, he shows the same thing Paul says, shows here when, when he says, you don't need to be afraid. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50, 20, that can be a great verse for some of you to memorize as you look at your past. A lot of people meant a lot of things for evil against you, but God meant it for good. The gospel enables us to revisit our stories, to reframe our stories, to see how God has used our stories to shape us. But this takes time, right? Like in preaching the sermon, you're not gonna, between now and community group on Wednesday night, you're not gonna process all that stuff. Say like, all right, I've got this kind of figured out. I'm ready to share. Like it takes time. Verse 17, Paul tells us that after his conversion, he didn't go to Jerusalem, which is kind of the, was the center of Christianity at the time. Instead, he went away into Arabia for three years. And that's like all he says. I went into Arabia for three years. And the commentators laugh that there is a shroud of mystery surrounding what exactly Paul did for three years. And there's a a tradition in the church that I I don't think this is stretching, that, that I don't think we have to to scratch our heads too much to say, well, what was Paul doing? I'll tell you what Paul was doing. Like he was processing his life and his conversion and what life with God means and how he's gonna step into a new life with God. It wasn't like, well, Jesus saved me. All right, let's go preach. It's what, what? I've been wrong my entire life. Everything I know is wrong. This whole belief that we're gonna climb the ladder and earn our way and prove our righteousness, that's all wrong. And you're saying it's by grace and grace alone? And the tradition that was handed down by my fathers that I was so zealous for was wrong. I got to process this. And so he goes to Arabia. My challenge for some of you is that maybe you need to go to Arabia. And I want to be clear. Some people think when Paul went to Arabia, that was a, a desert. You know, he was just by himself for three years. Arabia at that time had many major cities. So I don't want you to hear like, to do this work, you got to just disappear into the wilderness for three years and come back, you know, if you're a guy with a giant beard or something like that. 
I'm just saying it's a journey. And maybe you're on that journey. And if you are, I want to encourage you. Maybe you're not. You never actually tried to integrate the gospel into your whole story. And I would encourage you, what would it look like to step into that journey? What we need is to soak our story in the gospel of God's grace. Just take it and put it in there and say, God, what, what have you been up to? We go to Arabia, but we don't stay in Arabia. And that leads to my last point the freedom we're given to live into a better story. Paul went to Arabia, but he didn't stay in Arabia. And I think sometimes people, when they actually press into their past, it can be really enlightening, but sometimes people get stuck there. And it's almost like their life is like a Ferris wheel. They, they hop on this Ferris wheel and they go round and round revisiting all these events that happened to them as kids. And they just keep doing it over and over again, but they, they never actually move forward in life. And I would say, while well, it's really important to go backwards, don't never forget we go backwards. Why? So that we can go forward. That we deal with our past so that we can live more fully into the present. And so Paul, after he spends three years, we read in verses 18 and 21, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. He goes to Jerusalem. He doesn't really know Peter. He's heard about him. And you have to imagine that they process their own stories with one another. Like Paul's like, hey, so you like spent three years with Jesus. Hey, I heard you... I heard you walked on the water and then you fell in. What was that like? Like they shared their stories. And then after that, I, I say that just to say, you need other people in your life if you're going to do this work. And then he says, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. He went to visit Peter and then he went to, these, to Syria and Cilicia in order to preach the gospel, in order to live into the future that God had for him. Paul owns his story. He reframes his story so that he might live into the better story God has prepared for him. And what we see from this is that often the places of our greatest pain or our deepest shame eventually become our mission field. And this is why this work's so important. I mean, there's some, some real uh, cosmic irony and humor holy irony and humor, and God sending Paul to the Gentiles, isn't there? Paul, his entire life, <laughs> he didn't just look down, like he looked so far down on the Gentiles, he would view them as subhuman, as dogs. He spent his life working to keep himself and maintain a cleanliness, and they were unclean people. And so God says, you know what? Like, I think a great place for you to go would be to the Gentiles. But this was also going to be hard work because the gospel was a radical message and there were a lot of religious people who don't like change, but there was a change coming. You don't have to obey all the Old Testament laws. You don't have to be circumcised. Now, if a Gentile went around saying that, then all of the Jews in that day would say, whoa, 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 you can't listen to him. He doesn't know anything. But instead, Paul, who was like the best, remember? He was excelling above everyone. He... He was top of his class in Hebrew school. Paul makes a great candidate to go and make these claims. Why? 
because he knows the Bible better than anyone. He can win any theological argument he gets to, gets into. And then when you add on top of that, he used to persecute the church. Paul had some serious credibility. I mean, we actually read in Acts that after Paul's conversion, Christians were still hiding from him. He would like show up to church to preach and no one would show up on Sunday because they were afraid that it was all one big trap and he was going to arrest them all. But then after a while, people realized, no, he's actually met Jesus. Think about how compelling he was because of that. How, you just want to hear from him. Anyone that was trying to rid Christianity from the face of the earth that now worships Jesus, I'd like to hear, tell me what happened there. Like help fill in the gaps. Oftentimes the places of our greatest pain and deepest shame eventually become the mission field that God sends us to. I think of the woman who struggled with eating disorder, with an eating disorder or eating disorders for years, who comes to faith, gets in good community, finds real lasting healing, and then she decides she wants to go help other women who are living and hiding with their eating disorders. Or the man who's been addicted to pornography for a decade or more, who comes to faith and through prayer, through confession, through good community, they find freedom from that addiction. And then they want to go and help other people find freedom as well. Now, I think that's so powerful because those, if you've struggled with either one of those sins, those are sins that you can feel like a particularly deep level of shame with. And what we typically want to do with our shame is like, we want to bury that and speak about our sin. And I used to struggle with some stuff, but I don't anymore. I kind of leave it there. But there's no power in that. The power comes when, yeah, I used to be here and it was horrible. And here's how I found freedom. And I really believe you can find freedom as well. See, owning our, our greatest pain and our deepest shames, they can, can lead us to do incredible things for God and be incredibly helpful. I'll share a personal example. I mentioned last week that I think about my own mortality a lot, and I learned who else in the congregation thinks about their own mortality a lot because they talked to me. They came up to me and said, I thought I was the only one that every day thought about death. And what I didn't share with you last week is why. Like, why do I think about my mortality so much? And I'll tell you why. It's because when the cement was still wet in my life, like before the age of 20, I lost three grandparents within three years. I lost a classmate or a friend every year from sixth grade on. I lost one of my favorite teachers and my dad was given a year to live kind of every year. And so my entire childhood, like people were dying or people were about to die. I don't think it's any wonder now that I think about mortality a lot. Now I could look back at that and be angry or frustrated, but I look back and say, why, why did I experience all that? There's a lot of mystery to it. But I'll tell you, one of the things I've come to grips with over the years is that God used those things, that pain, in order to make me who I am. 
I, those questions, when, when you see a lot of people you love dying, you start to ask, all right, so what happens after this life? Like, what, what comes next? And so I'm in seventh grade re- wrestling with deep existential questions of life. And then when I hear the gospel, it starts to connect the dots. I wouldn't be a Christian, I don't think. I mean, God, God can do what he wants, but I don't think I would be a pastor if it weren't for those events. Here's why I say all of this. Your story matters. And you are doing a disservice to the church and you are denying the sovereignty and wisdom of God if you, don't, if you don't go back and ask, hey, what was God up to? And if we try to just kind of draw a curtain between our before Christ and after Christ, like you're missing out on so much that God was doing to prepare you for the future. I want you to hear your story is valuable. I think part of the reason in the church we said we don't feel freedom is because people hide. And I think we also hold ourselves up to unbearable standards. Everyone in their mind has the standard that they're supposed to live up to. But then I say, well, who lives up to that standard? And no one does but Jesus. And so everyone walks around, most people walk around feeling very, very guilty, wondering how do you, you hold it all together? And I think what we need in the church are people who can be really honest. I mean, my wife and I, we've got five kids under the age of 10. I'm gonna write a book. What were we thinking? You know, like, it's really hard. I love our kids, but it's hard. And you know what's not helpful is when we look at other parents who seem like they have it all together. You know what's really helpful is when we talk to parents who've been there. Say, we were here. This is what it was like. This was the hardest part. If you feel like you're drowning, that means you're normal. Here's some wisdom for moving forward. Here's how to raise your kids in the Lord when your house can be absolutely crazy. That's what helps people and that's what brings glory to God. And that's what we see with Paul. He ends the passage saying, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They're only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. I mean, isn't that what we want our story to be? They glorified God because of me. Because isn't he the guy who, isn't she the one who, oh, wow. Look at what God did in their story. I want to close by saying this. Some of you are here and you're not Christians. And one of the things that's keeping you from coming to faith is your past. Maybe you've done, you feel like you've done horrible things in your past, things you're afraid to mention, things that haunt you to this day. Maybe you feel very, very much like God couldn't love me because of my past. And I want you to see that in this text, Paul steals from you any right you might have to say that. Paul robs from you the ability to say, God can't save me because I have a really checkered past. Paul murdered Christians because they were Christians. Paul tried to rid Christians from the face of the earth. And yet you, because you have some sexual sin in your past, you think that's a bigger sin than Paul trying to rid the earth of all Christians? You think that makes you unlovable by God? I mean, Paul, he actually, he says, this was, this was the joke from God. This was, this was the, 
the wisdom of God. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, Paul wasn't saying measure that or remember that so that you can say, I was the worst. Paul is saying, no, literally, I was the worst. No one was worse than me. Whatever your past is, it's not worse than my past. But... For that very reason, because I was the absolute worst, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See what Paul's saying there? I'll, I'll put it in the Kevin Jameson version, the KJV. God saved me so no one could ever say God couldn't save them because I was the worst. And he saved me. So we're going to take communion in a minute. If you've never put your faith in Christ, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but that you take part in the one who gives you the grace to own your story, the power to reframe your story, and the freedom to live into a better story. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to be free. If you're here and you are a Christian, as we come to the table and we remember that the body of Christ was broken on our behalf and the blood of Christ was shed, for us, communion's a time for us to celebrate the fact that we are loved by God, that we have peace with God, and that we are free. Now, what happens is we, sometimes we sin throughout the week. I mean, we always sin throughout the week. Sometimes it hits our conscience in a particular way. We come into church feeling guilty or numb. And I would say communion's a time for us to remember that he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. So we confess not to earn his forgiveness, but to be reminded that his body was broken, his blood was shed long before we did anything. And so we come to experience the healing power of his forgiveness. So I'm gonna pray if you're a Christian, I encourage you to come to eat and to drink. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to pray with me that you might experience the freedom Jesus offers. Let me pray.